Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating or review. It makes a big difference. It helps other people know about the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Today, John's talking to Lloyd Lobo, co-founder at Boast AI and host of the Traction Podcast. Let's get to the show. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. All right. Thank you for joining me today. I got to tell you, I'm excited to talk to you for two reasons. A, it's amazing that you're alive because before the mics heated up, you, you told me about two near-death experiences. So I want to I ask you what that's like. But let's just start with giving the people a quick, just 10 seconds on who you are, and then we're going to rewind and get into your story. Thanks. By the way, I've been excited to be on your show because I read all your content. You're a community guy. I'm a community guy. And a lot of the things you put out there, I think it's so important. My fundamental belief is if you build a community, you will not become a commodity. Yesterday's innovation always becomes today's option and tomorrow's commodity. But if you build a community, you won't become a commodity. So I love the content you're putting out there and helping people build communities. So quick background on myself. I'm a a founder. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a community builder. From within, my purpose in life is to bring people together to create a big impact. I love bringing people together to have a good time, to build stuff. That's my personal DNA and hence community building comes very naturally to me. By education, I'm a software engineer. I've been in the US and Canadian startup ecosystem for more than 15 years as an entrepreneur, as an exec running product and go to market for a number of early stage startups, community builder and angel investor. I most recently founded a company called Boast AI, which is a fintech platform that provides businesses with R&D and innovation funding and also co-founded and bootstrapped a nonprofit community called Traction, which has now more than 100,000 entrepreneurs. We bring leaders from some of the fastest growing companies like Twilio, Atlassian, Asana, Shopify, et cetera, to share learnings on how to build and scale companies through meetups, retreats, conferences, and podcasts. Man, you are a pitch machine. I love it. That was awesome. So I think a lot of us are going to know Traction. I certainly know it. I've seen the ads and and we know the conference and Boast as well, even before I connected with you on LinkedIn. I, I, I've seen Boast around. So you've done a really good job with the promotion and the growth of your, of your company. So we're going to get to all that in a second. But you mentioned that there were a couple experiences you had of big Silicon Valley, well-funded startup failures. And I want to start there because I think that's something we don't hear about enough. Companies that have all the promise in the world, they're in the tech epicenter, and they don't work. So can you talk a bit about what that experience was like and, and, and how that went down? Definitely. You know, the media has perpetuated this addiction to unicorn porn, right? The reality of the situation is the world is powered by horses, camels, and donkeys. That's the reality. Now, the thing is, what what, what I'm trying to unpack here is the majority of the companies that are on this path to unicorn, which is you got to double, double, triple, triple, triple kind of thing, like grow triple, 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 and then double, double, hit a unicorn. It's very rare to do that. And a lot of founders, they get addicted to this unicorn porn by the media, and then they want to go and raise money. The thing that you have to ask yourself as a founder is, do I really want to build a venture-backed company? What does that look like? Because you have a board. You have stresses of growing 3x, 4x, 5x. And if you're not, 
There's people that are asking you, how can you make that happen? When somebody gives you 5, 10, 15 million, 20 million on an idea, or at the early stages, or at the Series A, they're not giving you that money to sit on it and keep on your bank. They're giving you that money so you can grow triple, triple, double, 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 right? And that is a very hard thing to do. So the first thing you have to ask yourself is, am I prepared to go on this journey? I'm not raising money just because it's, you know, I'm addicted to unicorn porn. 95% of the founders I talk to, they want to raise money because the media has put it out there. But they're not prepared to go on this journey. The question you have to ask yourself as a founder is, how long do I want to run this company? What is my personal definition of success? How much money do I need to have in my bank to be happy? Like, what does happiness look for me? Do not build somebody else's definition of success. When you go and raise money, you are building somebody else's definition of, you, of success. Now, a lot of the times, you know, the 5% of the times, I think there's alignment between founders and VCs. But when there's not, there's problems, right? Because it's very stressful to try to build a company that's tripling, tripling, then doubling, doubling, doubling. It doesn't work always, right? But it is, it is basically not love. You may be passionate about the idea, but when you raise money to go on that journey, let's accept one thing. It is an experiment. Let me add one thing there. And I think it's such a funny thing. People use the term equity. I'm, I'm raising equity. Oh, you're going to have a 20% equity stake in my company. That is the most misleading term because the equity that they have, I'm talking about venture capitalists who know what they're doing, is essentially debt. I mean, they're going to get paid back. They're going to get paid back first. They're going to get paid back more. And whenever I see write-ups in, in TechCrunch or whatever about, oh, this company just raised $45 million. What if I got a $40 million mortgage on my house and said, I got $40 million mortgage? People would say, what are you, crazy? What are you, nuts? That's basically what you're doing. You're, you're getting yourself into a huge hole that you will hopefully dig yourself out of. But you're basically taking on debt. That's how I think about it. You are taking on a lot of stress. The thing with this is you got to just be aligned that I'm prepared to go on this journey, right? And so you got to make sure that the market's big or eventually will be big. You are open to building that kind of company, right? So one of the companies I was on the founding team of called Speakeasy. It was AI for sales. It was incubated by Bessemer Ventures. They put the team together. I worked out of the office for a couple of years. And we, you know, we launched and it was, you know, Bessemer is probably the best VC I've ever met. Now, Byron Dieter is, is like, he's the nicest, like he is everyone's dream board member. But regardless, you raise this money on an idea. What happens when you raise money on an idea? More companies die of indigestion than starvation. When you have a lot of money starting out or have access to capital, you start becoming frivolous. We built a web team, built a mobile team. All of a sudden, before we even hit product market fit, we're 30 people. And then it was an AI tool. It was a calling tool for salespeople. Before the call, it said, prepped you for the meeting. During the call, it guide you through the selling process. And after the call, it, it update your CRM and generate the next set of action items. But when we launched, there were 10,000 people that signed up. You know why? Because we launched with free calling in the app store and it was free. So butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers signed up for it. And I'm like, I can't draw an ideal customer profile. We are screwed. But what happened was that 10,000 sign up, create an addiction. Like, no, you know what? We have to, we have to now keep this momentum up. But when you're starting out, right? You got to please a small set of people. You're not ready to invest in growth if you don't have a single kind of customer coming to you to solve a problem. And the second thing is anytime they have that problem, they don't keep coming back. 
So we started seeing retention issues, right? Because these guys were not the sales persona. And I fought for the longest time that we should kill the free and make it paid. Eventually, months later, they all agreed, right? The team agreed. We made it paid. We worked with Braintree and, and we implemented a payment solution. Out of those 10 plus thousand people that stuck around, there were 300 salespeople. And then we started making the product perfect for those 300 salespeople. And we started charging now top down $10,000 a year for like a team of 20 or 30. But what mm -hmm. happened was we had spent so much time building this horizontal product that nobody wanted that by the time we got to the sales persona, we ran out of money and we lost a lot of people and motivation in that process, right? Our chief architect wanted to leave, key people wanted to leave. So there's, there's a key learning there is that when you're starting out, just optimize for what you need to get done. Four phases yeah. in a startup, right? Phase one, I have an idea. What do you need to do? Validate it. In a B2B setting, what does validation look like? Can I convince 10 people to pay me to try it out? Really, just optimize for that. You don't need VC money to validate. And if you need external money to validate an idea, that means it's going to be tough going for you in the long run, right? You just, you're just looking for a crunch, a crutch. Because think about it. You can do Wizard of Oz. You can offer a consulting service. You can do things very manually to convince 10 people to try it out, right? I've talked about this hack before, so I won't go into it now. But the idea of just throwing up a landing page, running 50 bucks of Google Ads, and then there's nothing behind the curtain. It's the Wizard of Oz analogy. And just see if there's demand. Exactly, right? But the thing, what happens is this. Founders, and I'm, I am guilty of this. You might be as well. A lot of founders that I advise, I've, I've angel invested in, we're all guilty of this. We exaggerate the vision a lot. We're speaking in futures. When we talk to a VC, what is our job to close this deal, right? What happens though, if you're not aligned on the metrics and the plan for year one, year two, the next six months going into that deal, the VC is like, you painted this big vision. I want to see growth. I've given you 10, 20 million. Why aren't you deploying this capital to grow? But then one board meeting in, second board meeting in, you got to stop selling the VC, right? Because you got to be like, you know, I don't think we have product market fit. Our churn is X. People are churning because of this reason. So I don't think I can invest in growth because investing in growth when you don't have product market fit means you are throwing money in the fire, right? And so what is, what is then product market fit? And there's all these things about product market fit. But if it's a B2B product, it's very simple. To me, customers in validation paid you to try it out. Now, anytime they have a problem, they keep coming back to your product. So you have retention. And what is the leading indicator of retention? It's engagement. I use your product, right? So, so what happens a lot in the B2B is they focus on revenue, which is, which is good. Revenue is good as a secondary metric or, or a supporting metric because if somebody doesn't pay you, is their feedback really great? We don't know, right? Are they going to be serious? You can't be sure. But sometimes people will pay you for an annual plan. But if they never are engaged in your product, chances are they're going to churn at the end of the year. So a lot of this, I've been through this, this sort of engagement churn problem in highly funded companies. When I say highly funded back in the day, raising like a five, $10 million seed, a $6 million pre-seed or big deals, right? Yeah. And, and, and then those companies go nowhere, right? And I've, I've been through like three of these episodes and I realized that, you know, constraints lead to creativity. Why do you think Twitter has 140 character or LinkedIn has 1300 words or characters? 
those make you creative, right? And so it's really important to have some constraints. If you, like, I, I talk to a lot of like big company consultant types, like the big four or the McKinsey. And they're like, yeah, you know what? We have this job, but we're going to raise money to pay our salaries so we can do the startup. Like, it doesn't work like that, right? Yeah, it, it's funny. That last example, the, the idea of companies die because of indigestion, not starvation. That is so true. It's catchy, but it's actually really true. I've talked to very, very wealthy people who have gotten rich, let's say, off a service business, old school service business. And then they want to start a tech startup, a SaaS, AI, crypto, blah, blah, blah startup. And I know off the bat, this is a terrible idea. Why? Because their first move is to hire a an agency pay them $300,000 to have their brand design booklet done. And I'm going, are you guys out of your mind? You should be limiting yourself to, let's say, 15000 as startup capital, and you should be doing only the most important things. And and you know those people, in fairness, they're not really built for that. They, they have other strengths. But it's the idea of having too many resources and you just die of bloat versus having to figure things out and work on that muscle early. There's a very important lesson in service business, and I'm glad you brought that up. A service business, if you've done it with discipline, is a great way to bootstrap a tech company. And I'll tell you why. What I realized after building product, like so my, the, the first startup I did was automatically. It was a chatbot in 2013. I didn't even know what chatbot was. It was using case-based reasoning to look at inbound queries and respond like a real human. You know, sometimes you just wish if I stuck with something long enough, it would have been freaking a big company, but then you ditch it. And then, and then, so all my companies have been in AI. But what I realized was with Boast, we started doing it manually. We started offering a service, right? And when you do a service, you know what are all the touch points. Okay, you know what? I got to collect this data. I got to analyze this data. Everything breaks down to these three steps. Data collection, data normalization, and workflow. So then you, you piece in like, what data do I need? What data am I collecting that can be automated through APIs? Okay, is this structured or unstructured data? Can I normalize it? And then what is the workflow that I can do? And if you break that down into those steps, you can turn any services company into, you can digitize it. At the basic level, you can digitize it. And at, at, at the greatest level, you hope that you can turn it in, like you can GPT-fy it, right? right? But there's a lot of these companies that offer services and they want to go and build tech. And I'm like, guys, you're just going after the tech because it's sexy. Every SaaS company that needs to be built, I feel has been built. And you know now it's like revisions of old products and whatnot. It's very hard to build a company that's self-service, that's product-led. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's incredibly hard. And the roots of that are, if you understand your customer and really do that service manually, you can automate it eventually. So yeah, totally. Because they launched it one day and it, it went viral. They blew up because they had a good understanding of what to build to make it blow up. And they did that because they were dogfooding their own product with a small group of people, right? And, uh, and the more I talk to service people that want to go into tech, I'm like, just, you have customers here. All these yeah. manual workflows, just automate it. You'll build a tech company. Yeah, I see people who, like the example you just gave, I don't know if these numbers are real, but you can raise $10 million put a whole bunch of money into a tech product. You get on 300 customers who are paying you $10,000 a year. So that gives you $3 million in revenue. I have a service business and I was seduced early on by tech, but I, I landed in service and I'm so happy I did. I can sell a $3 million contract on a 40% net margin 
and I just made $3 million and I'm just delivering a service. So I don't need to raise $10 million and build some you know, hocus pocus to do it. And I feel like a lot of people, the only benefit, the only real thing that you have with tech that you don't have with service is your multiple on sale. And by the way, and that and that sale is like a you know a one in a ten thousand chance. But the point I'm making is everything else about the business will be just the same. It'll be fine. You'll be making all the same money. You'll have great margins if you know what you're doing. You don't have to worry about tech for tech's sake. I want to jump to your bootstrap business because I want to hear how it did work. I know you just had a business and you sold to PE. So what's that story? Yeah. So we, when we started Boast, right? My co-founder and I have known each other since university. We're partners in every project. And he, after engineering, went and worked at Johnson and Johnson, built software there, then did a startup. Felt felt he needed to study accounting. His unique combo of accounting and engineering took him to the world of tax credits, government funding, R and D tax credits. And then he called me one day and like, this thing is so manual. It's so broken. We need to fix it. Let's do something about it. I'm like, great. Jumped at the opportunity to work with him. I was at a startup that I thought was going nowhere after a lot of funding that replaced the CEO, yada, yada. And um, we were on the East Coast and I was begging my wife to move to California. I'm like, it would be a great opportunity to just start building something out of Cali, right? And uh, out of San Francisco. And she was against it because her family was in Jersey. And we had arguments and arguments and she's like, fine, I'm going to apply to one university. If I get in, we're in. And it was Stanford. She got in and that was the, you know, my 12 years in, in San Francisco. And, you know, back then the story was really true. If you want to build, if you want to work in the movies, you would go to Hollywood. If you want to build a tech company, you would go to San Francisco. And all of this, you know, out of that came traction and all the network of all these CEOs that come to traction is just from a function of being there. Right. And so we, when I jumped at the opportunity, it was like, you know, now I'm in San Francisco, we can build this company. He was in Vancouver. So we started with Canada as the first market. And it was the first thing we did was pick up the phone and call companies. Hey, can you, you know, there's this shred program and you get 64% of your R&D spend and we'll streamline the process. They're like, who are these? Science, research, engineering, uh, yeah. development. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, for product development, right? So right. basically globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given in tax credits to fund businesses, but it's a cumbersome application process. It's prone to frustrating audits and it takes a long time to get the money. And we said, we'll, we'll just deliver value across that whole chain. But when we started, people were like, who are these guys, man? I'm not going to freaking, you know, work with another R&D tax consultant, shred consultant. So we're like, hey, the one thing I have access to in the Bay Area is access to great founders. So we started hosting pizza nights. We're like, okay, pizza nights, bring a founder, somebody comes, they give a talk, whatever. The first time 10 people came, second time 20 people came, and more and more people started coming to these pizza nights. One day, the co-working space where we were hosting these events kicked us out. They're like, dude, you have 200 people here. That evolved into traction. The reason why I'm bringing this story is we were founders who had failed or been through like a hard journey. And we we're like, you know, we don't know what we're doing. If we call people, we're not sure if we're going to get customers or not. But the one thing, if we host events and bring people together, the social proof of the speaker and the value we're giving to the ICP, the audience will paint us as good guys. And as a function of doing those events, BD became easy and we started getting customers. And our early BD sales guys were like community builders. We would, they would, we would host events. They would go to events that we host in the community. They would go to events other people would host in the community. 
I was on the board of Startup Calgary, so I hosted a few of their Startup uh, Calgary launch parties, collaborated with different organizations, hosting Startup Weekends and whatnot. And we started hosting a lot of events. Those events one day evolved and needed a brand and turned into traction. And it's How funny did you convert community into customers? You know, the funny thing is we were never deliberate. It would be like traction presented by Boast AI. It would we'd give a what Boast does. And if you want to talk to us, talk to us. And we would like the early events that we do weren't a zoo, right? 10, 20, 30 people. It was all founders who are all prospects and it was invite only. And we wouldn't like hard sell them there. They come here. Now imagine this, right? What is, what is a good community experience? You come in, you see people like you, you see somebody you want to learn from and you have a great experience. So I have this framework, which I think it was Dan Martell who told me about it is you have your ICP draw spokes around it. Who you, who do you fund? Meaning what tools do the, does this ICP pay for? Who do they follow? Who are the leaders in the space and who do they frequent? What blogs magazine they read? So I started building lists of those people. And what we do is we'd invite the people that entrepreneurs would follow popular entrepreneurs to speak and we'd invite the press to interview them. Right. And then we would call like other vendors, like, you know, who they'd buy tools from to sponsor and have tables and whatnot. So when you come in there, you're like, geez, this is my tribe here. But imagine I invite you to an event and, and you come in and nobody's there to greet you. You walk in, there's all a bunch of people you have nothing in common with. And then you leave. How many times you've seen an event like that? So we'd, we'd focus on the ICP very strongly on providing value to them. And then naturally they'd be like, hey, you know what? I'm like dealing with XYZ for my R&D tax claim, my shred claim. I should just work with you guys. You guys are adding so much value to me. Right. Can you share? I, I don't know if it's public, but you sold to, to PE. No, 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 Can I, you share I any numbers, revenue, anything like that? I can't. Like we, we sold a majority stake. Uh, we, we did a majority uh, deal with a, with a PE firm. Not majority enough, but like sub 60%, me and my co-founder sold we still own a good chunk of the company and we're still on the board, but it's not something I advertise very publicly. Right. And so do you, do you still, are you active in that business or that's done? You're, you're behind it. I'm on the board. So we, me and my co-founder have two board seats there and as much help as they need. I mean, it's a great team. It's a growing business. And I would say the bulk of my future wealth is tied to my remaining stake in the company. <laughs> Interesting. And why? Okay, so let me let me ask you this. And this is something you and I haven't talked about this, but I got a friend who sold, he had a um a tech company. He had he has a it's actually a hardware company. He does servers and and CPUs and whatever. He sold his company a majority stake in it to private equity, held on to a minority, and now that private equity firm is selling to a much bigger private equity firm and he's making, you know, much more money off that second deal. Is that a common thing? Like, is, is that what you're referring to? Or is that, is that, yeah, that's, kind of a, that's, you... that's more or less it, right? Like uh, the idea was, you know, we were a very profitable, high growth company, but at the same time, me and my co-founder did a couple other startups. We were living on our wife's salary for so long and like burning the midnight oil, getting burnt out here. We weren't prepared to do a typical venture capital deal and, put all the money on the balance sheet and go on this triple, triple, double, double journey and potentially do a zero to zero sum game where it could go boom or it could go bust. My wife already told me, like, she's like, if you're going down the path of raising capital, 
you better realize that if We're this done. one fails, you're getting a job at Google or Salesforce or Oracle or something. When she said Oracle, I'm like, geez, no, right? You got, you, you got to stoop that low. Yeah. So, so, so then we only, that conversation, see, this is what's called alignment, right? Me and my co-founder are aligned on what we wanted. We didn't want to build somebody else. We didn't want to build somebody else's definition of success. We wanted to cash out. We wanted some liquidity for ourselves because we wanted to de-risk. And the reason why we want to do that is we bootstrapped this company with our blood, sweat, and tears. And we took no money from the company. Like every year we do a company offsite, take the whole team to Cabo, Costa Rica, Hawaii. When we took no money from the company, we still out of our pockets took them on these trips. Traction never made money. It was like, even in years where we scraped to put together traction, we still hosted it and gave back to the community, right? And so it was very important that we had some liquidity. And if you ask yourself as a founder, write these questions, whoever is listening, what is my personal definition of success? How much money do I need to have in my bank account to live a happy life, right? Is there a version of this company that I do not want to work for? right? How long do I see myself running this company? So if you, if you ask us those questions, great companies, great founding teams, great partnerships, great marriages are built on great alignment. It doesn't do you good if a co-founder wants to do unicorn porn and you just want to like have 10 million or 20 million in your bank, right? Doesn't work. I, I get that. Let me ask you though, why run your company? You said you were bootstrapping it, you were profitable, uh, you had good revenues. Why deprive yourself? Like why, why weren't you taking a nice healthy salary at that point? Where, where you had the thing, the thing is we had a lot of growth and the tech wasn't completely kept up with that growth. And so we mm -hmm. needed to invest a lot in tech to build. Got it. And so when you're investing, you are essentially your own VC. And because of that, like we weren't able to take for the past year's money, right? It was always like, do I hire engineering? Do I hire salespeople? Do I hire engineering? Do I hire salespeople? Do I hire customer success? And so this PE deal gave us like, ah, oh, you know what? You can cash, cash out. But if you want, you can keep optionality in the company and help it grow to the next level with your advice and, and everything as a board member. And the thing is, I think it was a great deal for us because if I waited right now, no deal would happen, right? Look at what's happening in the economy. No deal yeah. would happen. So you got to cash I mean, out. Everything. Got to cash out. Got to have keep stake in the company. The company is 20 plus, right? So like on the brink of 20, you have to People. shoot. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, revenue, 20 million. Oh, revenue, right? 20 million. Yeah, yeah. So you'll see, right? The, the company is like approximately 20 million revenue. But what I'm saying is, when you do a deal north of 10 or at 10 or just about to hit 10, most companies, it's very hard to get to 10. Getting to one is hard, right? Getting, getting from zero to 100 is, is hard, 100,000 ARR. Getting to a million is harder. But getting to 10, I think, is the definitive milestone that I can take it to 100. Quick break here while I tell you about something really exciting I've been working on called the Business Essentials Kit. Here's the deal. I get asked all the time, John, how do you run your business effectively? What's the best way to build a website? How do I get a branded email? How do I save on legal fees? How do I manage my social media? So what I've done is I put a kit together for you for free. You can download it at johndavids.com with all the tools and services that I use to run my business. Get it right now for free at johndavids.com. Getting from zero to 100 is, a, is hard. 100,000 
ARR. Getting to a million is harder, but getting to 10, I think is the definitive milestone that I can take it to 100. Because a bunch, of things, because a bunch of things turn into process then, right? It's like, you know, I put <laughs> like the, the, the South Park analogy, I put a bunch of underwears in and like freaking billions come out. But like you figured out a process, right? Like you figured out what are the me- what are the things you need to put in this recipe to produce it consistently. Because what happens is this is this is how I look at it. So let's go through a very simple framework. You need to validate an idea. What, how do you do that? Get 10 customers to pay you to try it out. The only leading indicator there is I call email network. I, I leverage my network and my tenacity to get pull 10 people in the door. You get to product market fit. What is the leading indicator? The engagement. They keep using your product anytime they have the problem. The lagging, lagging indicator is retention, right? And say you expand that to 50 customers, average 20,000 annual customer value. So a million a million in ARR, your product market fit because high retention, people are not churning. The next step is product channel fit. You figure out a repeatable, scalable channel to get, keep and grow customers. Don't try a hundred things. You know, a previous company, Heathen Shah was an advisor. He comes to us for a meeting and he's like, show me your marketing plan. I show him like these 20 channels and he sinks in the chair, goes blue in the face. And he's like, you're going to die. He's like, if you can't figure out one channel, the company is going to die. What is the one thing that's working? I'm like, ah, oh, you know, it's cold calling, cold emailing, but it's not quite working. So I'm trying these other things. He's like, jam more data in it. Figure out one channel that works. There's great power in one kind of customer coming through one kind of channel for one kind of value. So the point I'm trying to make is you scramble, scramble, scramble together and you figure out that one kind of customer they don't churn, so your product market fit, and you figure out a repeatable, scalable channel to acquire customers. And by that time, you're three to five million in revenue. If you have repeatability in your customer acquisition and your customer delivery, I think you're untouchable. Then you can build a big company. Then what is stopping you is probably your motivation as a founder or money. And, and process. I mean, and getting process. to a million with... And I'll, I'll just echo what you said. It's one avatar, one sales channel, one product. And that'll take you to a million. And if you have to throw a whole bunch of fairy dust at it, you're not doing it right. It should just be that clear. Exactly. 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 And so so then now, what takes you to 10? Right? So you have a you validated the idea. So let's say you got 10 customers to pay you 100,000 ARR. You took it to product market fit, leading indicator engagement, lagging indicator retention. You took it to 1 million. You figured out a repeatable, scalable channel to grow for us. It was a community, right? We got to like north of three by then. Now, what is scale? Scale is you have repeatability. Now spend 25% of your time trying new things and spend 75% putting fuel on the fire. So 75% of whatever we made is like, get more customers coming through this channel. We blew up traction. We started doing two live webinars a week, two YouTubes a week, meetups, podcasts, all of that. We blew that up. We added a secondary layer, which was sales development. And that went on fire too, right? We started with me being an SDR using Mixmax, doing cold outreach. I was able to just with doing cold outreach, sign the quota of one rep in a year. So we're like, okay, cold outreach works. So now that became a second channel to get keep and go customers. Then we're like, okay, now where else do we spend 25% of our energy? Let's go into the US market. We went into the US market. The US market started generating millions in revenue. So now we're like, we have a second repeatable, scalable channel to acquire customers. And we have a second market. United States, right? So that's when you're getting to scale. 
And then we're like, okay, now let's add a second product, second channel, second market, second product. Second product was what is, is again, what I said, it's a cumbersome application process to apply for these credits. It's prone to frustrating audits and it takes a long time to get the money. The first two, the audits and the automating the application process we solved, but long time to get the money we didn't solve. So we launched a lending product. We took a hundred million in line of credit and we said, why wait for the government to pay you these R&D credits, your refund? For every month you spend in R&D, we'll analyze it and we'll give you that money now. You don't have to wait to get it from the government. You don't have to wait to, to go through this R&D and then file it with the government and get it. We'll give you the money now. So that became the second product, right? And so that journey, the way I look at it is validation focused. Product market fit, that's the only thing that matters is engagement, leading, and lagging retention. Product channel fit, all in, try to figure out what's that one repeatable, scalable. Then when you're at scale... 25% goes into trying new things. Now, this is where most founders fail. They spend that 25% and, and they acted like it's scale already because they have some money, right? And especially if you raise money like a series B or, or a large series A, you're like, oh, maybe we should go and try a new market. Let's go into the US market. Okay, let's build a US team and a US marketing engine. Dude, when you started a company and you had an idea, you didn't pour that much money. You validated it. You went to product market fit. You went to product channel fit. Or they'll be like, let's launch a new product. And they won't do validation. They won't talk to customers. They won't launch MVPs. They'll just blast and they'll just start working on a new product. I think what enabled us to be sort of not frivolous and not waste money was the constraint that we were bootstrapped. We were using our own revenue to scale the company. And this is also what caused us to burn out because our wives are paying the bills. So we're like US market test. I ran the test. Then we leverage that money to hire people, salespeople to do it. Or SDR test, new channel. I was the SDR. I wrote the scripts. I A-B tested the copy. Then we hired people, but it was our money, right? New product now. Same thing. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, Lloyd. So I want to just go back here. So you had two products. It's uh, tax credits and lending. And you had millions in revenue at this point. And you told me earlier that you were trying to build out Tech, tech, tech. So here's what I'm thinking. If I was, if you and I were talking back then, when you were at that point, a few million in revenue and growing with these two products, I would have said, you probably have very good margins. You can run this thing as a quasi service or a tech enabled service. Why did you need lots of tech to do this? We could have run it as a service. The multiple and service businesses are not good. And the way, and this is, this is why, right? We leverage service to get to product market fit. We took the learnings on service to see what is the manual work, right? What are the jobs to be done? What am I doing here? What is the manual work? What is broken? If I had a magic wand, what would I automate? How would I, how would I apply technology to streamline the process? Because technology gives you one thing. It's infinite scale, nothing else. Don't build tech for the sake of building tech. Only build tech if it improves the customer experience. It helps you handle more clients and provide a better experience to the customer, right? So for example... Lending is a very labor-intensive process. I would be skimming through lots of technical information, financial information, banking information to write to underwrite those lending deals, right? Sure, we can right. do it. You know, there's so many debt firms that do this manually, right? Lots. But if I build a platform that did this at scale, then the company is now not worth 2x, 3x. It's worth 10x, 15x. Right. right. So, it, so it, was it, was to, it was to build the resale multiple. That's why you did it. Exactly. Exactly. Now we didn't, we didn't, we didn't try to like put a square peg in a round hole deliberately. 
we had started with that end in mind, right? It's like, there's a very simple math for Boast to get to 100 million in revenue. It's 5,000 customers. What is stopping me from getting 5,000 customers? Nothing, not marketing. It's not sales. You know what it is? It's having the ability to automate more and more. Because the thing is, if I'm throwing more bodies at it, it takes away from my margin, right? If I'm throwing more bodies to do it manually, imagine 5,000 customers, how many people I need to deliver that. Whereas 5,000 customers where 80% is automated and the, and the service people are doing the last mile, it's effectively a software company. And so that gives you margins, it gives you scale, and it gives you a multiple. What, what, what drives the multiple is your margins. And what, let, what let me drives ask you the margins question then. is the scale. So the, you mentioned that you weren't going to tr- try to put a round peg into a square hole. I, I ran into this problem. So my, my company that I was building back in 2016, 17, we were trying to provide a white glove service, but automate it. That, that's fundamentally what it came down to. And we couldn't, we just simply couldn't automate ourselves out of the service. Were you actually able to successfully automate what you wanted to automate you know, or, or did you hit roadblocks, roadblocks there? And you know, I have other friends who've gone down this path. What happens is growth is an addiction. And as a founder, you got to tell yourself that, you know what, I am growing. I am adding customers to validate a certain checkpoint to get data so I can build software to then automate it and scale it. What happens is it gets very, very difficult the more customers you take, the more customers you take that are not the same archetype or they want a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then you don't have sort of, you don't have a scalable process. If you don't have a scalable, repeatable process, you can't automate it. And this is the hard things that you fall into, right? You take a simple thing would be you take only tech customers. You only take them in, in Canada. They do one thing and you drive one outcome for them. And it's very easy to automate it. But then you take like, you know, manufacturing and agriculture and you go into London. And when you start, when you start, when revenue starts driving your decisions, then you're like, you know what? I got to, keep these customers. I got to service them. So you got to throw bodies at it. And then as a founder, you get burnt out or you're like, shit, do I build a tech or do I serve these customers? And so that hit us a lot because we were getting customers left, right, and center. Traction was growing. The sales team was growing. And then it's like, oh, do we invest in growth? Do we invest in technology? And if I had to go back in time and do things again, I would be very deliberate in terms of how we added customers and the pace of it because the end goal is to build more and more software. Now, building technology is like saying, I'm going to slow down to eventually run, right? It makes you run. And, and so I would, have, I would have done those trade-offs. But you know, when you're in the moment, you're like, oh, there's money's coming in, the money keeps the lights on, you get more customers, it pays the bills, you can do more things for employees, all this stuff. And, and you lose sight that, you know what? I should focus on spending this money on technology, maybe take a few less customers so we can scale. I tell you something, I've, I've come to realize that focus on money leads to short-term decisions. Focus on impact leads to building world-changing things. Yes, but let me, let me make one critique. And I agree with you on that. I totally agree that, that if you're focused on money, it's very, very hard to, to be productive the counterpoint to that, which I believe is that the way to not focus on money is to have it. And so the one, the one thing I might have done differently, and it's always clear into, you know, a hindsight's 2020 and everyone's different. But my thing is you can build your company so that your revenue is at the point where you can afford to take a salary so that you're not burning out, so that your wife's not having to support you. 
you can actually have that. And then every dollar after that, you reinvest. It sounds like you were trying to kind of really work on the edge. 100%. Um, we are we you, really worked on the edge. And you know, if I went back in time, I would do exactly some of those things, right? I would have uh, probably not tried to grow as much and be like, you know what? Why, why do you need to invest in the sales team? We're organically getting X clients. Let's just put the money in building the technology that helps automate the service delivery. Then we can add more clients. I would have done that. I would have probably taken more money. I would have taken more breaks. I would have scheduled, I would have scheduled working out every day. I would have scheduled no phone time, dinner with my family. I would have done a lot of things. That's why I'm wearing a hoodie. I just came from the gym. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so I would I would have prioritized a whole different bunch of things because what happened was I got to a point where the P deal happened, but I was just burnt out. I almost died of COVID. Then when I left the company, I got depressed because I had been building my entire identity around the company. I spoke at X, like an infinite number of conferences, podcasts, all the press I had been on. And then one day you leave and you're like, your whole identity is around the company. So what I did was I was living on the edge there, focused on the business, just the business, 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 and nothing else. My whole identity was the company. And then one day you leave and you realize, man, you know, what really mattered are the things that you didn't nurture, right? It's like saying when you're working out, right? Like everyone focus on the, on the chest and like, you know, the arms and everything else. But really what gives you a complete body is having nice legs. You don't want to be the guy with the skinny legs and the skinny forearms, right? <laughs> and, and so, you know, the things that you ignore to nurture are the things probably that matter the most. Probably this, this is a stupid vanity thing, but like, you know, people have made fun of me for having like skinny calves, for example, right? I'm like, <laughs> you got to focus on on everything, nurture, nurture the whole thing, right? <laughs> the whole body, man, the whole body. So, okay, let's talk about the burnout, the near-death experience. By the way, I said there was two because you escaped from Kuwait when you were a kid. I'm not going to go back that far. Talk about COVID and, and kind of your, your life change where you moved to Dubai and that, that kind of thing. So... We were working nonstop, living on the edge. The deal happened and I told my family, we'll celebrate, right? And then we decide to, you know, my wife books a trip to Bora Bora for everybody, my sister, her kids, my parents, etc. Before we went on that trip, I get COVID and I get really serious, right? Like I wake up one day unable to breathe, oxygen's dipping. I'm in the hospital, like, you know, put in the car, taken to the ER, they put me on. Were you vaccinated at this point or no? No, this was pre-vaccine or vaccine was just coming out. So I wasn't entitled to get the vaccine. My wife's a doctor and she was still not allowed to come and see me. That's how crazy it was. So you know, my, your oxygen levels are dipping, you're delirious, you're, you're having these crazy thoughts in your head, they pump you with steroids. It's just, it was just a bad experience. And, and I thought to myself, like, man, if I died today, I haven't just spent any time with family, friends, etc. But then I came back from that experience, right? And, and at this time, I think we had done a big, a big uh, venture debt deal, like around this lending to startups, right? A hundred million. It was basically, we, we launched a hundred million fund to lend startups R&D funding. And when the press had called me, I was like coughing and coughing. And so they covered my, my story. They covered the COVID story and I was sick. And I basically in that article said, if I could go back in time, I would have spent more time with my family and kids versus just being an absent dad. But then after I came back from the hospital, the company hired maybe 80, 90 people in a span of six months. I got busier trying to make sense of the chaos. And, and uh, late summer, my daughter comes to me. She's eight at the time. She's like, dad, you've gotten worse. I'm like, there's so many people. 
there's so many people and I got to manage, you know, make sure like things are running smoothly. And she's like, why don't you go and work for another founder or things like that? So I can have my dad back. And that was, that was just, I'm like, wow. I'm like, that was shocking. A few things happened. I had a third kid a few weeks after that. And for the third time, when my wife went into labor, I wasn't around. A friend calls me. I was in some office and she's like, your, your wife's in labor. I'm like, freaking hell, man. I said, I wouldn't be in that situation this time. And this is exactly Uh what happened. And then shortly thereafter, like, you know, I transitioned out of the company. And when I transitioned out of the company, I lost my identity. I got depressed. I'm like, I came home and the first thing I remember doing is hugging my wife and crying. And I said, sorry. I said, sorry for all the times I wasn't there. Sorry for every time you went into labor, I wasn't there. Today, the company is, doesn't really need me. They, there's great leadership there to take us like to a hundred million, but I've lost my identity. And, you know, now that I'm here, the only people standing are, are my family. And I think if I could go back in time, I would do exactly the things you, you said, prioritize family time, prioritize health. And so those maybe six, seven months, I became a depressed alcoholic. I would, you know, I came into some money, obviously I didn't have a job and I was depressed that I'm not in my company being able to go on Slack and mess around and like, you know, do things, basically work. So I started calling random friends be like, let's go to Punta Cana and let's go to Tulum and let's go to Barcelona and let's go here and there. And just became an alcoholic and just party and drink all the time. And my wife finally is like, you know, by doing this, you're harming yourself, but you're really harming your family. If something happens to you, we're going to be hurt. And she's like, I think what we really need to do is let's go somewhere where the FOMO of building a next big company is not driving you. And we had traveled quite a bit and Dubai was a great spot for a few reasons. One, we have a lot of family in Dubai and like my cousins, people we grew up with being born in Kuwait. The other thing is Dubai is extremely safe. Like I've lost my wallet and I've lost my phone, just get delivered to you. Dubai is like Miami meets Vegas on steroids. It's Disneyland for adults. Everything is done for you. If I want a can of soda right now, I'll call it. It's delivered. The Cairo will come home. The doctor will come home. It's a, it's a city. It's assisted living. (laughs) It's a city from the future designed to do one thing, make you happy, make your life convenient. I kid you not. My quality of life has, has 10x since I moved to Dubai and I'll, I'll drop this, this post I had made about it. Sure. What's the cost of living like in Dubai? I tell my wife, it's the same cost as the bear. The way when we talk about it, we're like, we're living a Beverly Hills life for the cost of living in East Bay, Silicon Valley, right? Right outside San Francisco in the East Bay. Yeah, that's the before and after. That was the burnt out founder kind of thing. Wow. I think I think I think there's another there's another picture that you can see on my LinkedIn, right? I had gotten overweight and just just overall an unhealthy life. And, this is and, amazing. So what I'm looking at just for the listeners is on the on the left side the before, yeah, you're you're overweight, you look like you're I don't know, kind kind of like like a like a tech developer nerd, like like everyone else would look. And then and then a picture on the right, you're like a bodybuilder with the you're 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 an Instagram model. <laughs> so so my life changed for the better. But you know, could I have not done this in the U.S.? Of course I could have. I just didn't have the discipline. And this is where most founders come from. They come from a lot of stress, so they focus on the business first. And there was actually this high school study in Naperville. 
where they turned a low-ranking school into a top-tier school. They did this thing called zero-hour PE, where before kids even opened a page of the book or went to any class, they made them work out first thing in the morning. They came in and they became some of the best students in the entire world. And so I changed my life around this routine of you wake up, thankful for the glass being half full, that you can live in a place like Dubai and take a bit of a sabbatical while the world is in turmoil. Thankful for great conversations with friends, with family. Thankful for being alive. Bang out then 50 push-ups on Eye of the Tiger. Hit the gym. Focus on <laughs> me stuff. Focus on my new values, right? For the longest time, my values were success. And I realized I chased success all my life looking for happiness. But when I got that definition of success, what happened? I got COVID and almost died. Freaking left the day-to-day of my company. The market fell. So like everything invested is like 10, 20% down. So then really, you know, you chase success, you got it. You almost died. You're not in your company and the market is down where you've invested all your money. So then really what is success? Success is freedom, man. Success is being in a happy state of mind. I chased success looking for happiness. And I ultimately realized after six, seven months of being in Dubai that success finds you if you are in a happy state of mind. That's it. Wow. Wow, man. I feel like I've been on an emotional roller coaster with you. By the way, I'm just checking out this, uh, this second photo you sent. So it looks like, it looks like you're the goon, like goon number two in a mobster movie. And then on the other side, you are the boss of the mafia. It's, it's going to kill that guy. Like you, you really had a life transformation. I had a life transformation because I realized that money doesn't drive happiness. Money drives happiness so long as you use the money to buy yourself freedom. And so as founders, you need to know when to stop, when to go on the journey, what type of journey is right for you. And for me, my values right now are family, fitness, friendships. If it's going to take away anything that takes away from that, I say no to. Anything that brings me closer to it, I say yes to. So as founders... One of my key learnings is saying no is a blessing for you and your family and your health. Listen, Lloyd, let's end it there. I want to thank you so much for coming on. And uh, we're going to do another episode where we talk about community-led growth because I know that my, my fans want to hear all about that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I think I went long here. Every answer was long, but I'd love to do one on community-led growth. I have a book coming out on community-led growth in August. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, John. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple or Spotify lets other folks know that you love the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right.